this is a story that really has all the intrigue uh, of a mafia movie, except instead of being set in the, you know, the boroughs of New York City, it's set in the hills of Tennessee. And instead of having Brooklyn accents, it's, you know, the Southern drawl. But we certainly had information that the legislators were being corrupted. He said something to the effect that some of the members we support like their money all at election time, and some of them like it, you know, kind of spread out throughout the year. And that's when the red light went off. One of the things that the legislature decided to do was to try to cover up this vice of gambling with a virtue, which was charity. We started understanding that this wasn't about charity, this was about a really big time gambling operation. There were uh, allegations about people being threatened, about a, a kidnapping even. Uh, th there were rumors about a, a hit list, uh, even an undercover FBI agent. At the end of the night, the operators walking out with garbage bags filled with cash. People get cocky, they get sloppy, they, they start to feel entitled. And, and so what would have been unthinkable in a different environment, suddenly some people are willing to consider. In January 1989, the world of Tennessee politics was rocked when a former bingo regulator and lobbyist pleaded guilty to federal charges of racketeering, conspiracy, and tax evasion. The same figure pleaded guilty to state charges for offering a bribe to a state lawmaker. The lid on a Tennessean newspaper investigation and probes by state and federal officials had been blown completely open. At a press conference with federal and state officials, John Gill, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Tennessee, said, quote, In my 20-plus years in law enforcement, I've observed that any time you have people involved in activities based on getting something for nothing, gambling being a typical example, the crooks, swindlers, and charlatans come out of the woodwork. And boy, did the crooks come out of the woodwork. Over the course of the next two years, dozens of people were indicted and convicted for their roles in an illegal bingo scheme that was exposed thanks to the involvement of a once-bumbling backbench politician who secretly wore a wire for years. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of October 21st. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Over the course of the next two episodes, you will hear directly from many of the players involved in this unbelievable story of corruption. They include Randy McNally, once a lowly lawmaker who has ascended to become lieutenant governor, a longtime FBI agent, a former attorney general, and reporters Phil Williams, Jim O'Hara, and Tom Humphrey. But before we begin, we need to touch on a little bit of bingo history. Tennessee's state constitution explicitly bans gambling. Article 11, Section 5 states, the legislature shall have no power to authorize lotteries for any purpose. The Constitution, however, contains a provision that allows a state lottery system, but with a caveat. In 1971, lawmakers passed legislation to legalize bingo for charity. Over the next decade, legal opinions called into question whether bingo could be permitted under law, leaving the game in legal limbo. 
One of those opinions was in 1984, from then State Attorney General William Leach. He said that bingo was a lottery and noted it was based on three elements, prize, chance, and consideration. Throughout the 1980s, the legislature flip-flopped back and forth, moving to make bingo both legal and then illegal. Later in 2002, voters approved a constitutional amendment legalizing the lottery, the sole legal form of gambling in Tennessee. Until this year, 2019, when the General Assembly legalized sports betting. But let's go back to 1985. That's when Randy McNally, a four-term Republican in the House of Representatives from Oak Ridge, received a complaint from a constituent who had concerns about compliance issues with the bingo operation in East Tennessee. McNally made a few calls inquiring about what it took to obtain a charter to operate a bingo establishment. He eventually shared concerns he had with the Secretary of State's office about the charter process. All of that happened before McNally would be approached by one of his legislative colleagues asking him to have a conversation with a lobbyist from the Bingo Association. That was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Long. Here McNally is talking about Jim Long, who some would describe as a lobbyist who had maintained a low profile. We met at the Hermitage for lunch on a Thursday. It was February of 1986. He said all the stuff that lobbyists say to you, you know, we're a big organization, we help people during elections, Uh, we get involved, Uh, our members get involved, we make contributions. But what Long said next took McNally aback, although he didn't say anything at the time. He said something to the effect that some of the members we support like their money all at election time and some of them like it, you know, kind of spread out throughout the year. And that's when the red light went off. And I was worried about being wrong about what I had, I had heard, what I interpreted it, it, it to mean. And, you know, worried about calling in an enforcement agency and having, having it be nothing. He spent the weekend mulling over Long's remark. On Monday, McNally decided to call the local FBI office. The person that answered the phone said, I'll have somebody call you right back, which they did, and it was uh, uh, Special Agent Richard Knutson. Knutson and Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent Roger Farley paid McNally a visit at his legislative office. McNally explained what had happened and why he was concerned. They said, you know, we've seen a lot of smoke, but we haven't seen any fire with the charitable bingo. At the time, Knutson said the FBI had been hearing rumors about some lawmakers being involved in illegal activities, but investigators had yet to substantiate it. We were slugging it out, slugging it out of the investigation. It really wasn't going anywhere. It was taking a long time and not a lot of results. That's when Randy McNally walked into the office. That's former special agent Richard Knutson. That's when we hatched, uh, we came up with the undercover operation that's known as Rocky Top. You know, and he's a you know well-established uh, legislator, and he comes in, you know, uh, just almost out of the blue, and we were just astounded because we had tried. I mean, we had some of the, these allegations and tried to get cooperation from any number of people, and we were not making any kind of progress. So he really opened the door, opened up the door with us. The agents asked McNally to act normal, to go with the flow, let the Bingo Association folks contact him. If anything transpired, McNally agreed to contact the agents again. He waited. A few weeks later, Long approached him at the Capitol. I was walking to the Environment Committee, I believe it was on a Tuesday afternoon, 
And uh, Mr. Long stopped and handed me an envelope and said, we appreciate you. And I put the envelope in my pocket. Long didn't say anything else. McNally paced back and forth. He started walking toward the committee meeting, then turned around to head back towards his office. He repeated that a few times, ultimately deciding to skip the committee meeting and head back to his legislative office. Once again, McNally picked up the phone and called the FBI. He assumed that inside the envelope there was money. So the agents arranged to come pick up McNally at the legislature. And so I got, you know, went out the back door of the Capitol, got, got in the car that was out there, an unmarked vehicle, and we drove down to McDonald's restaurant on Broadway. The McDonald's was directly across the street from the large shared office building of Nashville's two daily newspapers, The Tennessean and The Banner. Inside the car, the agents opened the envelope. They, you know, did the gloves and tweezers and opened up the envelope, and there were three $100 bills in there. And at, at that point, I said, you know, that's, that's kind of cheap. To buy. <laughs> at least in my mind, it was kind of kind of cheap for a payment to get somebody off their back and, you know, on their side. From that moment, the investigation could finally take off. Others, including the state attorney general's office, got involved. Here's Michael Cody, the attorney general at the time. We began to work on what eventually was Rocky Top, and there were, you know, two things happening. One was a governmental uh, criminal investigations going on, and then our concern about, in the AG's office, you know, what was happening to the charity game of, of bingo. And, you know, when I went to Nashville, I only thought of uh, bingo as a Catholic church would raise money or the Kiwanis Club or whatever. And it was a small-time operation that people were having fun doing. And I was kind of shocked when I began to uh, hear from Perry Kraft and others in my office that were working on this that, you know, now you've got the Church of the Second Coming third time around that was a charity, but really what they were doing were laundering money and uh, paying it on back to legislators that would help them. And, you know, on on the other one hand, we represented the Secretary of State's office just like we did all governmental agencies. And we took the position that we felt like that the constitutional provision against lotteries covered uh, bingo, and that was a big piece of investigation and litigation that, that we handled. Arrangements were made to bring in an undercover agent. Knutson says that at the time, the FBI had used undercover agents for other investigations like Abscam and Operation Greylord, which were public corruption scandals that took place during the 1970s and 80s. What the Bureau was very, very concerned about here in the Department of Justice was that we were interfering in uh, a state government. When we came to the legislature, that we were interfering with uh, state government because we were putting in an undercover agent you know, right there in the in the legislative process. What we didn't know is that uh, we were kind of proceeding some other investigations that were in the incubator in other states involving corruption in the state legislature. So they gave us kind of a short leash. I mean, I, I got a threat from them. They said, you know, you don't know everything that's going on, but you screw this up, it's going to be hell to pay. 
Here's Michael Cody again, the Attorney General. But we certainly had information that that uh, the legislators were being corrupted uh, by these uh, uh, contributions and things, or even uh, being brought into some of the some of the activity. Over the course of the next few months, McNally's life would change drastically. His home phone in Oak Ridge was outfitted with a recording device. I could, I believe, press a certain button or use a certain phone, and it would it would record. And one time, I picked it up, and the individual said, "This is." Gentry Crowell, or this is Gentry Crowell's office calling for you. Crowell was Tennessee's Secretary of State at the time. And I was on the wrong phone. I didn't have the recording equipment on that. So I said, well, and, you know, started talking a little and then hung it up. And they thought we had been cut off. So I went to the other phone and said, I'm sorry, I guess we got cut off or something. (laughs) McNally regularly met with the FBI before he interacted with some of the main figures involved in the investigation. Then, in July 1986, McNally went to a dinner with Jim Long at the Regus in Knoxville. Before going to the dinner, agents outfitted him with a recording device. Long, at that time, was sort of schooling me on how things were done, that certain lobbyists were close to certain legislators, and he actually used examples, and that the lobbyist, if there was a real close vote, could then barter the legislator's vote. Ahead of the meal, the agents in McNally had decided on a code word. He heard it called over the restaurant's intercom system, used to alert diners when they had a call. McNally stepped away to call the agents. Uh, in case there, were, there was any trouble or problems, either I would say something about Dr. Emery or they would page Dr. Emery on the paging system in the restaurant. And so they did, and the plan was for me to go to the bathroom at that point. And they they said, you're about to run out of tape and we can't have you do that, so you need to end it. McNally thought the dinner was a failure. I felt a little bit disappointed because I thought he was going to give give me some more money, which wasn't the case. But the agents were actually elated because he kind of laid out the whole scheme of things. Eventually, during the 1987 and 1988 legislative sessions, McNally wore a wire to the Capitol every day. It allowed him to record some, but not all, conversations he had around the legislature. First, it was the Nigra recorder in my back, and the wires went over and down here by my buttons on my shirt. And it was a little, the microphone was a little like button. And going out of session, they had asked me if I could wear boots, and I said, well, I've never worn boots before. What about carrying a briefcase? And I said, no, I've never done that before, you know. Then McNally came up with a different idea about how he could wear a recorder. And I was into jogging and stuff at that time, and they had this neoprene thigh brace. So actually, I wore wore the little recorder about right here, and then there was an off-on switch that came into my pocket, 
And if I was in a conversation with one of the people that they had deemed as one of the targets, I could uh, record it. But if somebody else who was not came into the conversation, then I'd have to leave. The agents involved in the operation found McNally to be easy to work with. Back at that time, he came across as sort of like a, a reticent conversationalist. You know, he's That's not right. really out, yeah. outgoing, talkative, you know, that type of guy. So it was pretty easy to work with him because he gave the guys, he would say something and he would give the guys the opportunity to just spill the beans, if you will. You know, they did all the talking. <laughs> so just by, na- by nature, um, you know, and he was had the reputation of being straight-laced. Reporters covering the Capitol at the time remember McNally largely as a quiet backbencher and not someone typically in the middle of the action. Here's how former Tennesseean reporters remember him back then. First is Phil Williams. He had a perception as being a bit of a bumbling backbencher. <laughs> and, I mean, so certainly not someone that you would have expected to be a central player in this sort of drama on Capitol Hill. And here's Jim O'Hara. Randy was not one of the leaders uh, in the in the legislature by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, there were some interesting nicknames for Randy at the time. Care to share? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> Those nicknames referred to McNally often being perceived by his colleagues as aloof. McNally continued his work with the undercover investigation, at times finding himself in some awkward situations. Going out of session one time when they had had the equipment on, I believe it was Milton Hamilton came up behind me and was patting me on the back, just being friendly. And he said, oh, what's that on your back? Are you carrying a a pistol? (laughs) And at the time I was wearing suspenders, so I said, I think my suspenders have come loose in the back. When he first started wearing a wire, McNally was concerned for his and his family's safety. I was scared to death at first. Towards the middle or so of the investigation, I became fairly comfortable with it, and it became pretty easy to do. But he had to live with a secret, one he couldn't share with his friends or colleagues. That wasn't something real hard. Uh, uh, My wife knew, and not really initially, but shortly thereafter, and the children knew because of the equipment on the phone. I hope you're enjoying Grand Divisions. I'm Dwayne Gang, the politics editor for The Tennessean. The analysis and interviews Joel and Natalie bring you each week help take you behind the story. We're lucky to have them as part of our newsroom team. But more importantly, they are your eyes on the state house and governor, bringing you stories about what motivates lawmakers and how their actions impact you. But they can't do their work without your support. If you're enjoying Grand Divisions and their coverage of the Capitol, please consider subscribing to The Tennessean. Go to tennessean.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. While the federal investigators were doing their digging, local reporters had started asking questions of their own about what was going on with Charity Bingo. In April 1987, Jim O'Hara, one of the Tennessean State House reporters at the time, had been sitting in a routine legislative committee meeting when something piqued his interest. My memory was I was covering the state Senate back in 1987. 
the Senate Judiciary Committee meeting, which I believe met on Tuesday afternoons, was a pretty sleepy affair most weeks. And one week, a bill was being considered, and it was described as a little old housekeeping bill. Back then, when you heard the word housekeeping, you awakened because you knew that something was about to happen. And my memory was whoever was sponsoring the bill couldn't really explain it, and a lot of the members of the Judiciary Committee were sort of scratching their heads about what was going to happen. After the committee meeting, I went, there was a back hallway off the Senate Judiciary Committee room, and I started talking to some of the senators and saying, do you guys know what this does? And no one seemed to know. Among those in the audience at the committee meeting were several bingo-related figures, including Long, the Bingo Association lobbyist. After the meeting, O'Hara called his colleague at the Tennessean, Phil Williams. So Jim uh, was intrigued by what he saw during this uh, committee meeting, uh, came back and talked to our legendary editor, John Sigenthaler, uh, and, and Sigenthaler was like, let's go. Let, let's let's take a look and see what's there. Uh, at the time, I was a lowly police reporter, but I think uh, you know Sigenthaler knew that I was hungry, uh, and and so he tapped me to uh, to to work with uh, Jim on on trying to figure out what in the heck was going on with with this charity bingo industry. And we just start that we would start digging into it. <laughs> the bill, it turns out, was going to legalize games called pool tabs. And pool tabs were sort of like paper slot machines. And Phil, who had good sources in the law enforcement community, he started digging around. And we started hearing that there was something going on and that there was something related to charitable bingo. Now, we didn't know what the heck the charitable bingo games in Tennessee were, but we started asking around, started asking who regulated them, started asking who the lobbyists were, just started asking questions. Here's Teresa Wasson, the Tennessean city editor at the time. One of the things that the legislature decided to do was to try to cover up this vice of gambling with a virtue, which was charity. So they took gambling and they connected it with charity and boldly proclaimed that the money that the players were paying wasn't actually gambling. It was a charitable donation and they thought they were making it legal. And how could you be against that, right? How could you be against raising money for charity? How could you? Over the course of the next few months, O'Hara and Williams kept digging. Charitable bingo was regulated by the Secretary of State's office, and we started going up to the Secretary of State's office and pulling the charters. Charitable bingo was supposed to be run by a charity for the benefit of the charity, and we started finding the same names on multiple charters. We started finding charters for groups that sounded really shady, and The more we asked, the more we started figuring out that what was really going on was gambling. 
there was a lot of time spent just trying to understand the industry. I, I spent night after night after night at home going through financial reports, just trying to figure out the scope. And we were talking millions and millions of dollars <laughs> that, that were being raked in, but very little money was actually going to charity. <laughs> um, and, and then as you started digging into the reports, there were just strange things that, that popped up. I, I, I noticed one night that there were financial reports for seemingly independent charity bingo halls all across the state, but they were all notarized by the same person Hmm. who happened to be in South Carolina. John decided that we were going to have secret meetings outside the newsroom to to plot uh, our approach to the story. And in typical Sigenthaler fashion, we would uh, uh, he, he would rent out a, a room at the Union Station Hotel that was catered, including wine, uh, and uh, we we would spend hours there uh, hashing out how the story you know might look you know when it finally was published. Inside one of those meetings is when Wasson realized there was more to the investigation than editors had initially expected. John Siegenthaler was there. Jim O'Hara was there. Pretty sure Phil Williams was there. I was there with some people who had been involved in bingo. And they were talking about all the money. And I'm like going, at bingo games in my head? That's what I'm thinking. But when they were talking about money, when they started talking about what they considered to be payoffs for a protection racket. That's when I thought, yeah, I think there's actually something here. According to Wasson, some of the paper's initial sources had been disgruntled former members of the bingo industry. The sources wanted the newspaper to set up a sham business, something akin to the Mirage Tavern, which was the name of a bar that the Chicago Sun-Times had purchased and ran in the 1970s to investigate allegations of corruption and shakedowns. They were hoping we would do something like that. Um, while as fun, as I suppose that might have been, uh, calmer heads prevailed and we didn't <laughs> take that offer. Eventually, the Tennesseans' legwork resulted in the newspaper putting out stories on the bingo scandal. A lot of them. Beginning on May 10, 1987, the Tennessean published a 20-part series that went through early June outlining their findings on charitable bingo in Tennessee. The first story found that there were 280 state-licensed bingo games in Tennessee, which reported $44 million in receipts the year before. Only a million dollars, or 2% of the total amount raised in 1985 via bingo, was going to charities. The rest was returned to bingo gamblers in the form of prizes. And despite a state law saying bingo could only be played three days a week, many bingo parlors were operating six or seven nights a week. And finally, the newspaper discovered that bingo halls were conducting illegal games in the form of paper versions of slot machines and blackjack in order to increase their receipts. The Tennessean had a, had a real commitment in those days to investing the time and the resources that it took to do big investigations. Uh, the previous year, we had done an extensive investigation on then-Congressman Bill Boner uh, and allegations of corruption against him. And a few years before that, which was actually my first investigative series at the Tennessean, was about the collapse of the Butcher Brothers banking empire Mm -hmm. over in uh, Knoxville. At the beginning of the newspaper's investigation, it was hard to get readers to care. To fully grasp what was happening in bingo halls across the state, the Tennessean's reporters and editors went out and visited them, collecting firsthand accounts of what went on. Back in those days, there was no such thing as (laughs) non-smoking. So they were literally smoke-filled. Bingo is a boring game to me, 
And I really didn't know what I was doing, so I felt like I stuck out. I was much younger than everyone else in the crowd. The people who went to the bingo halls tended to be older, a lot of retirees, and they were also mostly working-class people or blue-collar people. I went to a couple bingo halls here in Nashville with my friend Eileen Behan, who went on to become a member of the Metro Council. And we went to these bingo halls. They would be big warehouse-type buildings, and there might be 50 people there. There might be 150 people there. And the bingo players were not playing the bingo that we had played in grade school. These were people who had, like, 27 bingo cards in front of them. And there were all sorts of variations of how you could bingo. During the breaks of the bingo game, people would go up to the platform where the bingo operator was, and that's where they were buying these pool tab games. And as I said, a pool tab was like a paper slot machine. You would rip off the pool tabs, and you'd see, like, did you get three cherries or did you get three apples, and what the payoff was. People would be going up there and they would be putting $100 bills on the table and gain $100 worth of these pool tab games. Clearly, people were dropping hundreds of dollars in a bingo parlor in an evening. As, as I was first digging through this, going through just pages after pages after pages of financial documents, I thought it was, you know, potentially a uh, you know, a few stories. Mm. It was it was a number story uh, at, at that point. But, you know, the more that we dug into it, the more we started talking to these underworld sources, you know, we realized pretty quickly that this was a big deal. It was a big operation. There were literally millions of dollars being made. At the end of the night, the operators walking out with garbage bags filled with cash. As we kept pulling at the thread of the story, there kept being other angles that indicated that not only had we stumbled upon a big gambling operation in Tennessee, but there was also hints of political corruption. The Tennessean was later able to report that only 2.6 million of the $124.7 million taken in through bingo between 1985 and 1987 were used for charitable purposes. As the Tennessean kept reporting on the topic, other reporters began to as well. Andy Schur of the Chattanooga Times and Tom Humphrey of the Knoxville News Sentinel did their own reporting on it. Here's Tom Humphrey. The first thing I remember hearing about what became Rocky Top was a legislative staffer uh, contacted me and said, can we be off the record a bit? And uh, I said, you know, the, the FBI and the TBI is nosing around and it says, I've agreed to cooperate with them. I just wanted somebody else to know that. And, we, and so I, I, I had already agreed to be off the record, so I was kind of stuck with <laughs> so knowing something was going on and not quite able to do anything with it. But uh, in those days, there was quite a bit of competition between the uh, newspapers and uh, TV stations and so forth in the legislature. A lot of reporters there. And there, everybody sort of got involved, and uh, I think the Tennessean did, did take a good leading role in getting that uh, thing going. 
Next week on Grand Divisions, part two of Operation Rocky Top. We'll explore how two officials committed suicide in the midst of facing investigations and efforts to reform the state's oversight of lawmakers. And we'll examine the parallels between now and then. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We'll see you next week.